Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I hope you're well. I hope you have weathered the second year of the pandemic. And on a related note, something I haven't been able to say since 2019, I'm headed to Austin for South by Southwest. It's one of my favorite trips slash boondoggles. I'm delighted to come back. If you're around there the first weekend of the show, please say hi. I will be the guy who looks like a podcaster. On today's show, I talked to the New York Times' Shira Obaday about something we really haven't seen before. Big tech companies, one after another, taking moves against Russia, or at least in support of Ukraine, and why that matters now and perhaps down the road. And then I talked to Kirsten Grind. She's the co-author of Happy at Any Cost, a new book about the fascinating life and tragic death of Tony Shea, the founder and CEO of Zappos. Kirsten's day job is reporting for the Wall Street Journal, where she led the pack reporting about the troubled culture at Activision, which led to the games giant selling itself to Microsoft, so we talked about that as well. It's a good show. You're going to like it. Now here's me talking to Shira Ovide. I'm talking again with Shira Ovide, the New York Times' excellent technology columnist. Shira, you and I both wrote this week about the tech industry's rare decision to side with Ukraine and against Russia in response to Russia's invasion. Everyone from Google to Facebook to Twitter to TikTok to Spotify to Netflix has taken a stance in varying ways. First question for you, are you surprised to see the tech industry take a side in this conflict or do they not really have a choice? They probably don't have a choice, although I think in general it is surprising the degree to which the international business community and the international community period has really united behind Ukraine uh, and to punish Russia. So, But you're right. In, in general, I don't think the tech companies really had a choice. Once it was clear that Russia was starting an unprovoked war against a neighboring country and that it was creating civilian deaths and, and millions of refugees, um, they really didn't have a choice but to sort of take a hard line, in some cases to say, we're not going to be in Russia anymore, or in the case of a company like Facebook, you know, which got banned by the Russian government, to sort of take a different stand and say, we're going to try to preserve Russians' access to these independent sources of information if we can. And to be a little bit cynical or maybe realist, um, even companies that might have wanted to not take a stance at some point sort of are compelled to simply because just about every at least consumer facing company is is extracting itself from Russia and that extends well beyond tech. The idea that that Facebook and Twitter and YouTube uh, among others have said we would like to be in Russia. We'd like to make our services available in Russia. We're going to take we're going to try to prevent Russian state propaganda from from flowing outside the country, but within the country we'd like to keep operating how do you think that calculus works? And you've written about this calculus, about whether it's better to stay in the country and provide services there or to simply say, no, we're just getting out, period. We cannot work in this environment. Look, I think it's not an easy decision, and I could probably make the argument either way. You know, I spoke to David Kay, who's sort of the former UN rapporteur on free expression um, last week, and he basically said, at this point, 
even given the large amount of disinformation that's spreading inside of Russia, including online in Russia, there really is a value to preserving independent sources of communication and information for Russians who otherwise hear about this war only through Kremlin mouthpieces to the point where, you know, it is now criminal inside of Russia to call the war against Ukraine a war. Right. It's basically impossible for them to operate in sort of any semblance of the way people are used to working with social networks. And by the way, same thing for journalism. Uh, that's why The New York Times and Bloomberg and other folks are pulling out. They cannot do their work there without risking jail. For context and history, what what's the normal stance for a big tech company with global ambitions when they're trying to do business in a company in a country where they have authoritarian leaders or, or are asked to do things that are generally distasteful to a to a western mindset it feels like again a, a sort of impossible dilemma and you know you wrote in your piece today right that the the standard line from tech companies and all companies really is we follow the law in any country in which we operate but we know that that's true, but also incomplete, right? That there are cases where both in democracies and in undemocratic countries, tech companies in particular really do fight either for users or for themselves. You know, we had this case, it's happened now twice in these high profile situations where um, the U.S. federal government has gone to Apple and said, these are phones used by terrorists, including in, in San Bernardino a number of years ago. And we think this, cre this phone contains evidence of crimes. We want Apple's help unlocking it. And in, in two high profile cases, Apple said no to the federal government, basically saying, we think this is uh, you know, a dangerous precedent. If we break security for the bad guys, there's no guarantee that security will hold up for the good guys, basically. Um, you know, and there are other cases where in, in India, for example, Twitter basically went to the Supreme Court of India over uh, Indian government's demand for Twitter to um, block tweets from people who were protesting this controversial agricultural law last year. And Twitter went to the Supreme Court and said, no, the Indian government is not complying with this country's own laws in trying to ban these accounts. So it is true that the, the tech companies follow the local laws as they should, as they're obligated to do, but it's also true that they push back when either their business needs or the you know needs of human rights demand it. And then sometimes they go the other way, right? Apple makes all kinds of concessions in China. You know, it took down a, a, a pro-democracy organization app uh, in Hong Kong a couple of years ago and said that was a security concern from the government. It seems pretty clear that it wasn't. Both Apple and Google have redrawn maps of Russia at Russia's behest to include Crimea. So you can argue it both ways. Do we have any sense of whether the U.S. government is weighing in either in this case or other cases when, when these countries are, are grappling with this, or are they pretty much left to their own devices? Yeah, it's, it's a great point. You're right. I think in, in almost all these cases, particularly with high-profile cases of American companies taking a stand abroad, they're not doing it on their own. They are either consulting with U.S. government officials or have the direct backing of U.S. government officials. You know, last year, again, in Russia, uh, Apple and Google blocked apps, an app that was used 
basically to monitor voting by allies of Alexei Navalny, the opposition politician. And Apple and Google complied, even though allies of Navalny basically criticized the companies for doing so. And, you know, at least privately, executives of those companies said, look, we didn't have the backing of the U.S. government. Where is the full force of the U.S. government to stand up for um, freedom and democracy in Russia. In this case, we we can't always do this alone. And, you know, I have some sympathy with that view that on the one hand, I mean, I will say that these companies also don't want the US government's um, opinion or involvement many mm-hmm. in many cases. But there are some cases where this really does have to be a joint decision. And as you point out in your column, these, you know, uh, when you're talking about Facebook and Google in particular, and some of the other ones, these are essentially kind of nation states themselves. They have global power. They aren't really restricted because there is no sort of global authority. And as we all know at this point, they have they have immense power and, and a lot of consequence to their actions or inactions. Your column today raises the question of how long this will last. We are wary of making predictions, but it looks like this could be a long-running conflict. It could go on for, well, it could go on for a very long time. How long do you think this sort of unusual stance holds for both tech companies and and corporations around the world? I think a lot of it depends on the endurance of Western governments and how long is, you know, Germany and Switzerland and the United States and all these other powers that have united uh, to defend Ukraine, how long are they willing to continue their pressure and sanctions, particularly if it means things like rising um, energy prices for Europeans and Americans. And I think companies, including tech companies, will probably take their cues from the endurance or lack thereof of the international community. I was struck for that piece that I wrote today about what happened in Saudi Arabia a few years ago. Uh, Again, no two cases are the same. Russia's war is not Saudi Arabia. But if you recall, you know, there was this agents of Saudi Arabia murdered and dismembered Jamal Khashoggi, this high profile uh, journalist who was frequently critical of the the leadership in Saudi Arabia. And after that, there was this revulsion, both by international governments and international businesses. And not all of them, it wasn't nearly as unified as what we've seen in Russia, but many of them kind of quietly step back from from their investments or involvements with uh, Saudi Arabia's government. And within half a year or so, many of the ones that had kind of stopped work with Saudi Arabia came back. And so that's an example of, you know, when money is on the line, uh, companies that once took a moral stand to stop working with a contentious government, they, they dropped that once the heat was off. Two differences here that Russia really isn't uh, a major market for any of these tech companies, really. Um, they're making very little money, if, if any, there. Uh, and two, in the case of uh, Khashoggi and the Saudis, you know, the Trump government was actively supportive of the Saudis. We sort of refused to believe the the well-documented assertion that their, their government killed Khashoggi. Uh, and even the Biden government has said, we're not going to punish them. This is sort of real politic, um, you know in a less gross way than the Trump administration did, but the same net result, which is we have to continue working with them. When it comes to Russia this time around, and and because this is such a rare decision for all of them to to move this way, do you think this is a one-off or now they've crossed this line and said, there are reasons for us to stop doing business 
in a certain in a certain place and to and to stop obeying um, government requests or demands. Do, is it fair to ask them to now do this when Turkey asks them to take something down or China asks Apple to make another move? Is it fair for us, for shareholders, for customers, for activists to say, look, you've already shown us that there are there are limits to your neutrality um, or is this a one off? It's it's a great question, and I'm glad you you raised it in your column. Uh, look, whether it's fair or not, there the tech companies are going to get asked about Russia every next time there is some kind of international incident or conflict, and they'll have to answer why is this different from Russia, where you did take a stand against an autocratic leader who was trying to cut off independent information and communication from his citizens. So whether they like it or not, this has set a precedent and any future incident like this or anything like this, the tech companies are going to be asked, why are you making a different decision now? Shira Ovaday is the New York Times excellent technology columnist, which I've already said. I'm just repeating it again just because it bears repeating. I'm delighted you could come on the show. Thanks again. Always happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks again to Shira. In a minute, we're going to hear from Kirsten Grind, but first a word from a sponsor. Kirsten Grind is an enterprise reporter at the Wall Street Journal. That is journalism speak for a reporter who doesn't really have a specific beat, but just goes and finds great stories. She has one here. It's the intriguing and dark and ultimately tragic life of Tony Shea, the Zappos founder who died in 2020 at the age of 46. She's written a book about it, Happy at Any Cost, with her journal co-worker, Catherine Sayer. Welcome, Kirsten. Thanks so much for having me. Um, it's, this is an impressive piece of work you've done. And, and along with that, I should just note here that while you were finishing this book, uh, last year, you were also doing blockbuster reporting at the journal on mismanagement and a culture of harassment and Activision, which ultimately led to this giant blockbuster sale at, uh, to Microsoft. So just in case you thought you were being productive at work, you should consider what Kirsten has been doing with her time. (laughs) Thanks for making us all feel bad. And thanks for making time. Let's just start by by recapping what Zappos is, because that's what people know Tony Shea. Um, what is it? What effect did Zappos have on on online retail? So Zappos, I think a lot of people know, it sells much more now, but it's an online shoe company that was bought by Amazon in 2009, but it was left to operate fairly autonomously. So it's it's operated on its own. Now they sell clothes and other things, but it's mostly known for shoes. Now, nowadays, we're sort of like, okay, great. Like everything's online, right? But back back when Zappos was really getting going in the early aughts, this was like, huge shoes online. Everyone was sort of like, what? Like, that's never going to work, you know? And so they really changed the way things are sold online, actually. And this was Tony Shea's second company. He he was an early uh, web guy and sold the company to Microsoft. This company sold for, I think, was it 850 million to... It was about a billion, exactly, to Amazon. And he sold Link Exchange in the 90s at only 24 um, for over 200 million. So imagine that. We have an image in our mind of what a tech startup CEO, a hyper successful tech startup CEO is like. How did Tony Shea fit that mold? And how was he different than sort of the archetype we think of when we think of a Mark Zuckerberg or Travis Kalanick or any of these young masters of the universe? Okay, so this is going to sound terrible, but I'm glad you brought up those guys. Tony Shea was an amazing person by all accounts. He was 
a great, genuine guy who truly cared so much about other people and his friends and his customers. It was a little strange for me reporting on this because, to be honest, I'm often doing reporting on people who are not that great. Tony Shea was not that person. Um, so it was it was really rewarding to be able to study someone's life and career as an entrepreneur. Actually doing good, right? I feel like, unfortunately, that's sometimes rare these days. Rare and or seen cynically as a marketing exercise. And I think exactly. in Tony Shea's case, it was a little bit of both, right? It was genuine, but it also became his brand. He wrote a book about happiness. He His whole point was treat your employees extraordinarily well, pay them to leave if they're not, uh, if they're not happy. Um, again, seems sort of contrary to lots of the sort of cutthroat, you know, hustle ethos that that a lot of tech is infused with. That's exactly right. Yep. And and was that all real though? Was that or or if you peered behind the cover, did it turn out that some of this stuff actually wasn't the case? So I would say most of it was very real, right? Um, at least for many years, and that's actually why Amazon was letting why Bezos, uh, you know the founder and then CEO was letting him operate on his own. Yeah. And Amazon is not known for being a warm and fuzzy company. Exactly. They're one of the go work at all times companies. Yes, exactly. I think at the end, you know, when we're sort of getting towards the pandemic, it started from our research seeming more more like a gimmick. Um, more just like trying to build the brand. Tony was becoming this sort of like superstar, right? Um, that's when it kind of started feeling less real. But I would say from what we learned, most of his time, it, it just felt truly genuine. Yeah. There was a big party culture, but literal parties and, and a lot of alcohol, uh, especially in the early days of the company, um, which, again, I think at the time was thought of as like, well, this is fun and benign. And, and, and there was clearly lots of partying at lots of tech startups for a long time it was kind of part of the culture. Um, is that something that wouldn't fly now? Or, or if Tony Shea was operating his third company and was alive and healthy now, would he be doing the same sort of thing? It's funny, I thought about a lot about this because um, you brought up Activision earlier, which is this giant video game company that also had a big culture of alcohol and partying. But the way Tony did this at Zappos was, again, I don't quite know how he did this, but it was really so genuine. So these parties were not just like show up at like Disneyland or an event space and, and you know, here's your drink tickets and get a couple drinks and then everyone gets wasted. Zappos parties were like these surreal events. I mean, it was crazy. People describe this one party where it was like an end of the world scene and there was a fake CNN anchor like broadcasting on this like paintball warehouse, right? So it was very well thought out and um, calculated, kind of. So it wasn't just a bunch of people getting drunk. Um, so that's, I think, sort of why it worked for Zappos. Um, I think it, it started going downhill when Tony, you know, started suffering more personally, and there was more drinking. I don't really think 
I think having alcohol in the office is tricky. <laughs> I don't think it's a good idea, personally. But... I think a lot of companies are pulling back on Friday happy hours or exactly. the, the beer keg in the office. And I've been in meetings uh, where people say, by the way, there's a there's a percentage of your employees who don't drink either because they're recovering alcoholics or it's they, they just don't drink. So by you promoting this, like you're actively angering or upsetting a bunch of your, your employees, let alone incurring all kinds of liability and all kinds of bad behavior. Behavior that lead that can stem from drinking. Exactly. Yeah. Tony Shea sells Zappos to Amazon, gets generational wealth, starts plowing that into this project in Las Vegas. Uh, Recode in an earlier incarnation sort of dug into that. It was a really weird, ambitious, very Tony Shea-like project that I still don't fully have a handle on. I kept hearing the number three hundred and fifty. Did he put three hundred and fifty million dollars into Las Vegas himself, or was that something he intended to do? He did. So, and Rico did do some great early work on this, which we actually cited quite a bit um, in the book. So his vision was to turn downtown Las Vegas, which by the way, is not Las Vegas that everyone knows the casinos. Um, It's sort of this forgotten area of the city. It's the beat up leftover. Yes. Um, I'd been to Vegas numerous times and I went out there to downtown and I was like, oh, I I hadn't even really known it was there. And so his idea was to turn this into kind of another Silicon Valley with new startups, tons of entrepreneurs. He was going to bring in art from Burning Man, um, which he loved Burning Man. He had all these plans. It was going well. I mean, the vision was great, but it was sort of classic Tony Shea. His vision was always amazing and very big. It was the execution that kind of suffered. And also, he was a huge optimist and really didn't want to hear about problems sometimes. So when some of these entrepreneurs were struggling, as entrepreneurs do, he kind of you know, he he wasn't there for them, right? And so it did suffer to some extent, even though the revitalization did end up happening. And to be clear, he was cutting these entrepreneurs enormous checks with like very little oversight. What do you need to come here? I'm going to give you in some cases, millions of dollars and sort of no strings attached, other than you have to come do this in Las Vegas. That's exactly right. Yes. And so some of these entrepreneurs would show up and you know, their business isn't going well. Suddenly, there was this kind of rash of suicides associated with the downtown project, Tony's development project. And Tony really like, didn't know how to address it. He wasn't very good at dealing with these problems in his projects. So in the end, he didn't really build the sort of Silicon Valley he was hoping to in downtown Las Vegas. But it is definitely way more developed than it was when he started out there in 2012. Yeah, the, so the, the the Las Vegas series that we did started off as a look into holacracy. I think I'm exactly. pronouncing it correctly. So yes. Explain what that is, why that appealed to Tony Shea, and sort of what became of holacracy. Oh my gosh. I have to say, that was very challenging reporting <laughs> because I couldn't figure out we we spent so much time, I mean, Catherine spoke to the Holacracy founder, just trying to understand the rules. So at its high level, Holacracy is supposed to eliminate 
like this hierarchical structure of management, right? So there's the big headline is always like, there's no bosses. But what it's really trying to do is encourage all of us like worker bees to start our own kind of thing within the organization and take control of our areas and give us all this power, right? Well, that's that's so it's it's sort of like a very good idea on paper, but the execution is just so challenging. Or it's maybe not even a good idea because there's plenty of examples <laughs> <Yeah>. of <laughs> people left to their own devices and it inevitably sort of turns out in one direction and you end up with people going, actually, you know what? It works better when the boss tells the manager who tells the sub manager who tells the worker bee what to do and we end up back in the old way. Um, and there's you can um, you can see why this kind of uh, philosophy appeals to a certain kind of tech person because there's a libertarian streak there. And also, you know, a lot of the tech culture still like has ties to the old 60s hippies roots. Was there something that was particularly appealing about this to, to Tony Shea? To be honest, I, I think the main thing that was appealing is Tony, again, unlike so many of these other tech entrepreneurs, really did not love being in charge. He did not love the role of CEO. He didn't want to tell people what to do. He wanted people to figure it out himself. And so I think he thought this was a way to change the company so he wouldn't have to be like directing people around. When you've got someone who wants to give people a lot of money but not oversee them, um, inevitably you're going to have people who who are there for the wrong reasons, or even if they're for the right reasons, are going to uh, misbehave. Was was Tony Shea aware that people were taking advantage of him, either intentionally or unintentionally? I think it's hard to say if he was aware of that throughout most of his career. I he was a very smart guy. So I have to imagine on some level, he was aware of it. The difference between most of his life versus like the last year of his life is that he almost didn't care. And he was cognizant enough to say, okay, 90% of my friends, right, are deserving of all this generosity of mine. Sure, there's going to be 10%. But, you know, I, I can deal with that. So I think that's how he looked at it. So in your book, you spend time sort of bouncing back and forth in time, and you you talk about the last year of his life, and he ends, he, he dies in tragic circumstances. We'll discuss that in a minute. And then you're sort of telling his history back and forth. But basically, what you're getting at is over the last couple years of his life, some combination of mental illness, drug abuse, some confluence of them all, uh, alcoholism, all combined to sort of make him a different person, even though lots of people on the outside aren't aware of that. Big picture, how do you report about something that is that delicate and i think to a lot of people's minds will consider that unseemly like why are you telling me about these intimate details of a person i admired or or was even friends with and now you're sort of pulling back these these ugly stories about him what what is first of all how do you think about telling a story like that it was very challenging i mean to the first part of your question how you do that so tony was never married he didn't have a family even though he was 46 that's fine it's a lifestyle choice so we didn't really have immediate family to go to it was all about gaining the trust of his very close friends who are basically like his family and unfortunately fortunately tony had hundreds of people who considered him a close friend so it was really figuring out okay but who are 
really the close friends, right? So getting to them. And then early on, Catherine and I, we really talked about how we had to be, as we would have at the Wall Street Journal too, be respectful of what happened to him, right? I mean, we are not a tabloid. We learned so many details about his last year in Park City and the decline of his mental health and his alcohol abuse that we just did not put anywhere in our articles or the book or anything, because we only just wanted to show enough to make you understand how his condition had declined, but not enough to make it feel like we were invading his privacy in such a way. By definition, you're telling people about his life in a way that he didn't want people to know, at least while he was at the time. Would you ever have thoughts about like, why are we doing this project? Why does this require all of our work? What what purpose is served by by telling a very sad story about someone that many people admired and didn't seem to harm anyone but himself in the end? Oh my gosh, absolutely. We had those thoughts. I did all the time, for sure. And you know, I had to answer those questions to a lot of the close friends, right? And my answer was always this. Um, Look, Tony was a very beloved entrepreneur. He, When he died, it was shocking to thousands of people, right? He unfortunately died in these terrible circumstances, very mysterious circumstances, It's our role in the media to get to the bottom of why that happened, right? In a way, that's the best way to sort of honor his legacy in a a way that you can explain it to possibly help other people. That's, That's really, honestly, our hope is that people will read this and say, okay, like, I shouldn't just focus on happiness, I should look within myself, all of this, right? Um, so that that's really what we came down to at the end of it. And there's a natural tension there, right? Because it's also to be just crass about it or honest about it. It's just a great story, right? It's a guy who's built himself up from nothing, becomes hugely rich and influential and beloved, and then has this tragic decline that there are many stories like that. There's also lots of stories about people who have mental illness and drug and alcohol problems who die under tragic circumstances and no one's ever going to know about them. And and we're, you're doing it because he is Tony Shea and a famous person. Um, and then you also, I assume, have competitive issues here, right? There's someone from two writers from Forbes recovering the same story. They've got a book. And so there must be a push and pull as you're trying to figure out, I want to get the story. I want to do it first. I want to do it best. But also, am I sure I want to tell this story or how am I going to approach it sensitively? Exactly. I mean, I go through this a lot with stories, but especially with Tony's story. And I personally struggled sometimes because I actually never met Tony. And suddenly I'm, because of my role at the journal, I'm jumping into stories sometimes as they're breaking just to do deeper dives later on. So along the way, I would sort of feel like, why are we being entrusted with this story, right? It was hard, for sure. And you have to really ask yourself those questions to make sure you're doing it for the right reason. Can, can you talk a little bit about, about just your role in the journal? I want to go back to the book in a minute. But but so your, your co-author, Catherine Sayer, covers Las Vegas and gambling. It would make mm-hmm. sense that she would be cover a story about Tony Shea's deeply connected with Las Vegas. Your role as an enterprise reporter, you do parachute into a, it's a, it's a big story. We're putting Kirsten on it. She's going to get to the bottom of it. 
how does that differ than being a beat reporter? What are your skills and, and, and strategies that differ from someone who's doing day-to-day reporting? Yeah, it's actually a lot different because my subjects are changing sometimes on a, you know, two or three month basis, right? Um, it's it's very different because your skill set is finding people to talk to on any given subject sort of on the fly. Um, when you're a beat reporter, say like, you know, you're covering Facebook, you're spending all your time trying to talk to former Facebook employees or current Facebook executives or consultants to Facebook. So when something happens, you're able to just call those people. So the difference for me is when, for example, my editor said, this guy, Tony Shea, just died, you know, from a a shed fire in Connecticut, I think we should look more into this. I'm sort of like, okay, I I found his Yeah. I found his book on our bookshelf. I like quickly read through it, like tried to familiarize myself with who he was. You have to you have to sort of parachute into that situation and understand it very quickly. So it's a big difference. Yeah, I, th- I find that. So you're like a SWAT team. You're like the journalistic equivalent of yeah. a SWAT team. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it, for sure. It sounds cooler than than person with a notebook. Or maybe it depends on your perspective. Back to Tony Shea. One of the things you really spend a lot of time on in the book is discussing that there's a group of people around him who probably, they might wish him well, but they're really profiting from him, especially in the last couple of years of his life where he really, he's mentally ill. He's he's walking around barefoot in Park City on, on cold on snow um he's doing ketamine he's doing whippets he's 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 writing manic notes on on sticky pads uh and there's also a group of people who are trying to save him um why do you think he didn't eventually get the help that he needed or was this a or is this a story where you can try as much as you want and someone who is that far gone can't be helped there's two answers to that uh the first one is He was so isolated by this time. He was living in a mansion in Park City, Utah, during the first year of the pandemic, very far away from his close friends in Las Vegas. He was surrounded by a group of these enablers who were very good at keeping others that were concerned away from him, right? Um, And then secondly... Listen, I have been lucky to not really have an addict in my life or or suffered from alcohol or drug abuse. I spent a lot of time researching that for this book, and it is incredibly hard not to let any of these enablers off the hook, but it's incredibly hard to deal with an addict and to get them the help they need. Um, and so even the people who were well-meaning in Tony's life at that time really struggled getting to him. His family, his parents, his good friends, the singer Jewel, none of them could quite get through to him at that time. You quote people, and I think different medical authorities in the book, suggesting that had he not died in this shed fire, um, he might have died within a year anyway, just because of what he was doing to his body, the, the accumulated abuse. That's right. And for folks who who have a vague memory of hearing that Tony Shea died in a shed, and we won't get too far into it, he he, he died basically of, of uh, from from smoke inhalation, um, and it was unclear whether he had tried to kill himself or not. And you guys end up not reaching a conclusion yourself. I assume that's a very intentional lack of conclusion. 
we we really tried to look into that more. The deepest investigation was done by the fire department in New London, Connecticut, and it was inconclusive. I spent a lot of time with those guys. We drove around New London, Connecticut. Um, we talked to obviously so many of Tony's friends. None of them really believe that he would have done something intentional. That said, the reason we kind of couldn't decide either way, because at the end of the day, there was only Tony in that shed that night. And all the all the fire department had is these sort of grainy home videos showing his time alone. And then at the end, when smoke is coming out and everyone's trying to get to him, that's all they had. No mm -hmm. one was in the shed with him. Right, so you literally can't see into you that You literally shed. can't see. Even even the people closest to him could only speculate what happened. So what what should what should we take away from this book? It's a great book. It's riveting. Um, I, I recommend it. But but what 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 when I put it down, how should I feel about Tony Shea? And does this tell me anything larger about tech companies or America or capitalism or mental health or drug <laughs> abuse or all of the above. What what is what should I be thinking about at the end of this? Yeah, there's two things we're really hoping people take away. Um, one on the more narrow front of Silicon Valley. We said earlier, right, Tony is not like, you know, He's not like some of these other guys, like Travis Kalnack. He's in a different kind of category. But the thing they have in common is that all these guys and women are put on this pedestal, right? And we're sort of like, oh, the tech founder. Oh, my gosh, the visionary, right? That needs to stop. We need to re realize these people are real people. And we shouldn't be putting them up there as like gods. I mean, towards the end, Tony was just basically a celebrity. He wasn't even a real person anymore. Um, and then secondly, and most importantly, this is a man, he didn't just suddenly, you know, decline in his last year of life. This was years of ignoring mental health issues and trying to make them go away by drinking. Um, what we really hope pe people take away is you need to focus on this stuff. You can't just paper it over. Mental health is hugely important, especially among high-performing people, right? Like entrepreneurs. That's what we are hoping his story will show. Thanks for doing it. I'm going to do a record scratch here, and I want to talk to you about the work you were doing last fall on, on Activision, because I do think, uh, and not to blow smoke, uh, you really are are, are largely um, in many ways responsible for a, a, a jaw-dropping transaction, basically forcing Activision's giant video game company to sell itself to Microsoft. To explain what the story was that you were following and, and how you got into it. You don't cover the video game industry, right? So how no. does it? How does this show up on your plate? How does someone say, "Hey, Kirsten, go dig into Activision and and explain all the 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 bad behavior that's going on there?" Right, and I don't even play video games. I shouldn't say that, but um, I have very. I I sometimes like to refer them to them as my handlers, my um, very good editors at the journal. So what happened in that case? is the state of California sued Activision alleging all this harassment and bad culture and pay gender pay disparity. This was last July. And um, my editors, my handlers. Um, so that's public record. That is, that is the state saying, we're doing this. So it's already, they've already pointing a, a, a flashlight or a spotlight towards the company. 
That's exactly right. Um, and I was in the middle of, of working on this book, and one of my editors, um, who I've had for many years at the journal, said, we should see like what the CEO, this is one of the, the highest paid CEOs in America, Bobby Kotick, one of the longest running. He's headed this video game company for 30 years. What did he know about all this? So it started with a very simple question, what did the CEO know? And then from there, I just went off with a couple of my coworkers who were also hugely helpful on it. You start reporting this in the summer. Do you imagine that six months later, your reporting is going to essentially lead to a situation where Bobby Kotick has to sell the company? No, I I have to say, I mean, listen, we all sort of thought one outcome is he might have to resign, right? But the board of directors at that company have all been there for very many years. He has huge support from his board. I did not, I personally did not think he would ever sell that company because it was like one of his, you know, it was like a child to him. He loved that company. He'd been there 30 years. It's his whole identity. Um, So I was really surprised for sure. I'm loath to ask you to do amateur psychology, but you actually are pretty good at it. Do you think that he thinks he did something wrong or do you think he thinks I, okay, yeah. (laughs) I think he... I, I well, I know. I, I think he thinks that we have it wrong and that we misunderstood him. And to be clear, he's not accused of harassment itself. This isn't a Les Moonves situation. This is him not acting on reports. Absolutely not. Although we do get into um, in our first investigative report last fall, a couple instances in which he was accused of harassment, in- including in one voicemail in 2006, threatening to have his assistant killed. But no, he does, to our knowledge, does not have sexual harassment allegations against him. It was just very, um, it was a huge problem at the company. <laughs> Don't leave a voicemail saying that you're going to have someone killed. That's not a... <laughs> It's not great. Um, So um, can you tell us what you're working on now? I'm working on getting this book out, Peter. (laughs) I will let let you get to it. Uh, (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on. The book is Happy at Any Cost, The Revolutionary Vision and Fatal Quest of Zappos CEO, Tony Shea. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Kirsten Grind, and thanks again to Shira Oveday. What a great job I have talking to cool people week after week. I also get to work with cool people. Jelani and Travis produce and edit this show. Sponsors let me bring this show to you for free. And you guys are cool because you listen. You tell me you listen. And you tell me who, what you want to hear about. And you offer me some advice from time to time. Um, thanks for all of that. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week.